0: Hey friends, it's Brandon. Before we get started with this episode, I want to take a second just to talk with you for a minute. And first of all, to say thank you for listening. I hope you and your family and your loved ones are all safe and well. It's been a while since we put out an episode and it's good to be recording and to be talking with you again. Honestly, when the whole virus situation became real, which for me was the week that ended with Friday, March 13th, I wasn't really sure whether the show would have a future at all, and it quickly became obvious that in-person recordings were no longer a thing, and discussions of work, how relevant could they really be when everyone's work is in peril, when none of us really have any idea how long it'll be before anything turns to any approximation of what normal will be. But over the following days, I was thinking through these things and as we were all getting our minds around the realities of social distancing and what going into quarantine really meant, a couple of people reached out to me and essentially said not only that they hoped that the show would continue, but impressed upon me the need for things like this, whether they're just pure entertainment or whether they're more thought-provoking, just to fill the time and hopefully to help us think through all of this without feeding our anxieties been a strange time. not going to lie. Uh, in addition to everything we're all going through together, my dad died last week of unrelated causes and not being able to go to be there for the end, not being able to have a funeral or even just sit with my sisters and talk about it all. It's been pretty surreal. So before we move on, I just want to acknowledge all that, to acknowledge that nothing's normal, that we're all going through it together and whatever you're up against, whatever you're doing to make it through, that you're not alone. And the only reason to keep doing these shows is for that reason to know that we're not alone. So keeping going, is going to mean some changes. As I said, in-person interviews at bars, restaurants, and cafes, definitely on hold for the foreseeable future. I have no idea how often we'll be able to put out an episode. Before, we tried to stick to an every other week schedule. Now it's likely to be as often as we can. And that's going to be about finding guests and scheduling conversations more than anything. But I can't tell you how often it'll be once we get into a rhythm or whether there'll be any rhythm at all. And I do think our discussions of work are going to change in some great ways. I think all our priorities are shifting. And the longer this goes on, the more that's going to be true. And then, of course, there's just the basic mechanics of how we produce the show. We're figuring all of that out as we go, as you're about to hear. So most importantly, again, thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on what you'd like to hear, please do reach out on the website, social media, and please let me know. And with all that, let's get into it.
1: Everything in medicine that people get frustrated with, the billing and the prices and the wait times, those are all secondary to what should be at core, which is an outstanding patient physician relationship.
0: I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guests for this episode are doctors, Eleanor Glass and Amy Meckley. They are the owners and founders and the doctors at Integrative Family Medicine, a direct primary care clinic in Cincinnati, Ohio. What is direct primary care? Well, you're about to find out. I have been a patient of Dr. Meckley's for about a year and a half, and have been so wonderfully impressed not only with the care at IFC, but with the overall approach and model that I've wanted to speak with Dr. Meckley and Dr. Glass for a long time. We originally talked about this episode about three months ago and had scheduled it for the second week in March, and then everything changed. I Had a chat with Dr. Meckley a couple weeks ago, really to kind of let her off the hook, knowing that they're likely to be busier than ever right now. And this can't be too high on the list, but both Dr. Meckley and Dr. Glass were actually eager to figure out how to do it, both just to keep some things maybe a bit normal and maintain contact, but also as a way to get some information out about how they see things progressing. So we rescheduled. I'm going to say right now that, first of all, Things did not go smoothly, but we did have a great conversation about their practice, integrative family care, about different models of care in response to the impossibly messed up state of healthcare in the United States, including direct primary care, and about what it actually means to be a doctor and how far we've strayed from the reasons so many physicians got into medicine in the first place. And yes, we were able to get some thoughts in on the coronavirus pandemic before the end of our recording. Part of figuring out how to keep doing the show is a bit of transparency as we go along. Recording a podcast over Zoom video chat is something lots of people do every day, but this was my first. But with some preparation and a lot of help from Justin Golden, who mixes the show, we were able to figure things out. Unfortunately, our Zoom connection abruptly terminated about 35 minutes into our conversation, cutting off the recording and ending the conversation, so we spent... About 10 minutes reconnecting and we're able to cobble together the last 10 minutes or so. I didn't get to ask the doctors everything I would have liked, but it was wonderful to talk with them both. And they couldn't have been better sports or more accommodating for this first mid-apocalyptic episode. So here it is. I hope you enjoy my conversation with family doctors Eleanor Glass and Amy Meckley on the distiller. First, thank you both so much in the middle of all this for taking time out to do this. I know things are are busy for you both in different ways right now. So thank you and welcome. Happy to be Um, here. We will get to talking about coronavirus in a minute. First, I kind of wanted to establish who you are and what you both do and how it's different maybe from what people are used to. Uh, And let's establish, first of all, that you're both MDs. You're not naturopaths. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You both graduated from the University of Cincinnati School of Medicine. Dr. Glass, you did your residency at the Christ Hospital in UC in Cincinnati. Dr. Meckley, you did yours at uh, the University of Utah McKay-D Hospital. So your training is mainstream, but your approach to how you're using that in practice is maybe a little bit less. so. So let's start first off with how long have you both been in practice together?
1: So we opened our office in July of 2017.
0: So it's been almost three years now.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, great. And how did this idea, how did integrated family care come to be? uh, How did the two of you meet and whose idea was it to go into practice together?
2: Well, um, we were blessed to be working at the University of Cincinnati together. Actually, uh, Eleanor, uh, during her residency was there, I was there as a faculty member. Uh, And that's the first chance that we physically worked together as physicians. Um, Previous... To, uh, or previous to that, probably right around 2013, uh, is when I was looking into, I was doing a lot of work around healthcare reform and what could improve specifically primary care um, in a lot of different fashions, um, both locally as well as nationally, came across this idea of direct primary care. And it, it, there was a few original names. Um, I know Eleanor started looking at something called um, Uh, Was it the ideal practice? The um, yeah, the micro practice model. Yeah, the micro practice model, which is a very small, intimate, um, and direct primary care. Actually, a few people had been practicing for about twenty years. Uh, It just wasn't very um, known, Uh, and then it started to take on a life of its own. I would say right around twenty fourteen. Uh, when more docs started to pay attention to it because it it became a successful way for some docs to become independent again and to actually truly focus on the patient. Um, It's, again, and we'll talk a little bit more about what, what direct primary care is in the premise, but I went to a, one of the early DPC summits in 2014 or 2015, I can't remember which one, And it was probably only about 60 or 70 people there. And now there's hundreds, which is so Mm. fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just an early thought, think tank, about how this could be scaled, what this was. Um, The American Academy Family Practice uh, got behind it. Um, And I kept watching it. And then it was probably around 20... I'm trying to remember when we first talked, around 2015 or 2016. I think it was 2016 um, when we really sat down and I said, um, I, I, well, it was around 2015 actually when I did the business model, cause I wanted to make sure that it was, um, uh, doable from a business mm-hmm. extension as well as is this really good medicine and how is it how well is it practiced? So look at best practice opportunities, sat down, really uh, did some work. Um, I was at Zebra University doing a uh, certificate on design thinking. And I think a lot of listeners, probably your listeners too understand what design thinking is, um, especially from the entrepreneur perspective, mm-hmm. and then put that tech or that thought process into what it would look like from a medical practice and thought, wow, Everybody involved is a winner in this. Everybody, all the stakeholders, it it really hits all of those. And uh, kept thinking if I was going to do something, like this, who would I do it with? And Eleanor was the absolute number one person I'd ever love to be in practice with. You know, so I, when when did we start talking, do you remember? Was it twenty sixteen? Yeah, probably, probably
1: late twenty fifteen. I think when Amy came to me with this. You know, visualization in this model that was more formed than what I had thought of. She was at a place in her career where she had been in academia, she had been in private practice, she had been at the executive level in a hospital. I was at a different place in my career. I was only three years out of my training, but already I had those feelings of burnout creeping Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And that was a big red flag to me that I was here three years into a career as a primary care doctor, a field that I felt very passionate about, but already feeling dissatisfied. You know, I knew that this was not sustainable for 20, 30 years in medicine. So Amy was coming to it from a perspective of having experienced many different aspects. I was coming in for early in the career, and it just, it was a perfect timing of we were both ready to kind of take that reckless leap of faith and, um, <laughs> you know, go for something different. And I think um, it, it was a very organized and very... Um, um, well-planned-out business decision, but we both, I think, in some ways, were attracted to the idea of just stepping away from the norm and trying something new, trying something creative, being able to um, do something different in the world of medicine. So it was perfect timing for both of us. So what's the...
0: Um, because there, you mentioned different models that you had sort of been examining or researching. I've, I've, you know, done a little bit of research and seen things like concierge medicine. What is, what differentiates the direct primary care model versus what people might otherwise be, um, have personal experience with, or if they're looking for something that's different and they see these other alternative models, what is specific to the direct primary care model?
1: I think one thing that we try to enunciate is, you know, let's go back to what is called direct primary care. The direct, the word direct comes from the fact that this is a direct relationship between the patient and the physician. So the, we try to eliminate third parties as much as possible. So large corporate entities, insurance companies, third-party billers, th- this is about us serving our patients as directly as possible. Um, the other models that I had looked at, micropractice, they were all examples of how can I really serve my patients and not feel like I'm working for an insurance company or a larger corporate health structure. That's, that's the thing that they all had in common and what, what primarily attracted me to, to working in the direct primary care model.
2: And and a good question on top of that because we we get that question a lot like the concierge, um, there's a, a VIP medicine concierge uh, practices. Some people call them boutique practices. Right. Um, we think those are really good for solving the access issue. And if you if you look at why like why would there be more models of care right now? Well, there's got to be issues that we're not doing well. Because when we look for alternatives, it means that the status quo, we're missing something, or there's, um, you know, no matter what you are as a stakeholder, whether you're the giver or the receiver, there's something that's not there in a the market. So the concierge practice came about, I think, from a little bit of burnout, as well as patients being frustrated. I can't get in to see my doctor. I have this great insurance card. I'm supposed to be, you know, have, um, you, know, you know, these great docs or, or the, you know, an excellent system here in the United States, but I'm not able to access it. So a concierge VIP said for a retainer. So for a certain amount of money, I can then, as a physician, take less patients on my panel. So therefore, actually maintain and 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 say I can. You can have access to me in in multiple ways, uh, but mainly when you're sick. But also in different ways. And then there was an element of and I'll do some other you know wonderful things and and um, extras a few extras. But the key there is they still use insurance, so it's not as Dr. Glass was saying, as Eleanor was saying, it's not direct. You mm-hmm. still have the third party. You still have a lot of influences in that room um, besides you and the patient um, from a, a billing financial perspective. So, as, as Eleanor was saying, that the, the care that that uh, the direct model is just that it's both a financial and personal relationship between you and the patient. Um, so it's. I think it solves not only the access problem, but also solves. Um, and we'll talk a little about the demographics of our practice. It solves, you know, the, the way that uh, most people can get care. Um, it's not just for um, a certain group of people who can maybe can afford that retainer.
0: What are the downsides for you? I mean, uh, is there are there trade offs. Were there, you know, financial repercussions? Are there? <laughs> what are the negatives? Because I can tell you from a from a patient perspective. I am Dr. Meckley's patient. There are no downsides for me, uh, and I didn't necessarily intend this to be a a commercial for your practice, but what the heck, let's make it a commercial for your practice. (laughs) Let's do it.
1: We are accepting new patients.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, which is another question I was going to ask you if you have a a limit, but I mean, I will tell you the most, the best sort of anecdotal experience was that I, I first came to see you, Dr. Meckley, when I had a little bit of a concern health scare. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't have, I had a marketplace plan. I didn't have a GP. I wasn't sure where to go. I was concerned that if I found something that was serious, that it was going to, that it was going to bankrupt me. Um, and uh, I came, you know, got on the website, had a brief conversation, came to see you, went to the first appointment. We talked through things. You did a comprehensive whole deal. But the but the thing is, I was driving home from the first appointment and I called my partner because she knew how scared I was. And she said, how did it go? And I, I cried on the way home.
2: Oh, I'm going to now Ah, oh,
0: saying, you never told f- me this because I felt cared for, for the first time in so long um, that there was somebody that I could trust. There was somebody that I could like be honest with that. I wasn't going to be giving away information that I felt was going to u- be used against me to sort of you know bill against me by an insurance company in the future it was a big thing for me um to be able for the first time in decades to sort of feel like I was held um and I wasn't alone in that and it turned out I think not to be something as serious as I as I had feared but um that was just as a you know yeah there are a lot of other things your lab costs are lower your uh, the two of you are actually accessible uh, I don't like I don't sit in your office and wait for the for as long as the appointment was supposed to be before <laughs> we ever even talk um, there are numerous things about the practice that are that are huge benefits but anyway the question was for you. Um, I I hear you talking about the positives in terms of having a direct relationship for the patient. I think we don't necessarily think as patients what the downside is for you as caregivers of having to deal with the same structures, of having to deal with the insurance industry, of having to be limited in what you can and can't do because of all of those. Um, But what are the things that we wouldn't be thinking about that might be both both potential positives and potential negatives to the model? Well,
2: first of all, thank you for your... Forthrightness and courage to share—that is, I mean, Brandon, you've never showed that to me. That was like so awesome. That was—it was just that you nailed exactly what Eleanor and I are are so motivated by. I always say that you know, healthcare became one word, and it should be two words: health care, because the care—it is exactly that which, again, and I'll speak for Eleanor, and I know that she'll 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 speak to this too. It, that is what the, the actual care, being cared for. I was doing some consulting work for, for somebody. We are talking about the, all the quality uh, metrics that we as doctors had to be uh, now measured on. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. There's all kinds of things that how we're going to get paid because we had to check all these boxes and do that. And I told them, I said, if we can just narrow this all down, it's one single question. And, and Ellen and I had talked about this for our practice, for our quality. Did you feel cared for? And, and that should be above anything else when it comes to healthcare. You know, did you feel cared for at every step of the way? And I love, I I cannot tell you how much my heart just almost burst when you were talking because that's the critical nature of what we do. We might not always have the right answer. We might not, medicine is not like that, Mm -hmm. but we can care and we can care at every stage. And that's what this model does. We, We always talk about this personal relationship. We can sit one-on-one with our patients and 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 be there with them and walk with them and, and, you know, whatever that might mean. And then we might not see somebody for six to eight months. That's great. They're doing fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But we're here. If you need us, we are here and you know that. So again, just to, to thank you for that, because I think... You know, you can look at all kinds of statistics and marketing material and all kinds of stuff, but um, people's testimonials—what we talk about—it's what's important to us. Which, again, that's one of the reasons these podcasts, I think, are so cool, very cool. But to go back to the original question, downsides. Um, I'm sorry. E, do, do you want to add to that? No, no,
1: no. I, I was gonna. I was gonna answer as well. T- tell me what you're gonna say first.
2: Oh, for the downsides, I think the biggest thing that we're finding, because we've coached a lot of other physicians out on this is the financial risks. because you're you're somewhat leaving a comfortable position of having someone else run your business. You're the doctor. Yeah. Um, you go in, you show up, you do your doctor stuff, you have a whole team around you with most systems. Um, you're not taking on a lot of financial risk. So a lot of people who know me and and when Ellen and I decided to do this, um, you know there, there was a lot of, we think you're crazy. You know, why would you ever go back out and practice? Um, We had to trust each other. Um, we had to trust our business acumen, which is one of the things we try to do, and, and through different various um, methods, have taught other physicians business basic business acumen because it's not hard. Bi- doctors are very, you know, they're, they're very smart and they're very detail oriented. So when you hear that the doctors don't make good business people, it makes me cringe a little bit. I'm like, well, because they didn't have the schooling, they didn't yeah. go to economics. not because they, they couldn't go- do it, right? You know, yeah. and, 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 and again, it's not that we all have all these talents, but if you get some basic Business acumen, and someone teaches you, apprentices you through some of these things. You're like, oh, now I know what a, you know, a P and L, you know, mm-hmm. what a balance sheet mm-hmm. is. Why would I want to look at? You know, just very simple things. So because
0: you're I think, you're much more than I th- than I would think that most doctors would be. You are small business owners and entrepreneurs. That's in a what I was going to say, more Brandon, is that
1: yeah, I think the risk, the downside is just taking that risk, which I think any entrepreneur, you know, in your audience would know a lot more, shares that risk much more than, than it being something unique about us being physicians. It's, it's that same risk of being an entrepreneur, of going out there, of not knowing, you know, if this is going to work out, not having the backup of a large institution yeah. or a large corporation behind you. Yeah. Um,
0: is it controversial? Is what you're doing controversial? I mean, you, you mentioned that people had said you were crazy from a business perspective and from a point in your career, maybe where you're going back into to, to practice. But is the are there other things about it that within, you know, healthcare overall, that in your peers that are in any way controversial?
1: I think it's a great question. And I think, yeah, yeah it is, because everything in healthcare is controversial. One of the best ways that I heard someone help me describe what I'm doing is, and this is what I try to remember, is that direct primary care, this model to me is not the solution, but it is a solution in healthcare. And it's okay to accept that there may be many solutions out there. This was what was right for Dr. Meckley and I at this time in our careers. I think whatever you see or an individual sees as the solution in healthcare, um, you know, may vary, but we definitely see this as a solution. And um, it, you know, you know, for me, it was a way to allow us to return to the core fundamentals of being outstanding family medicine doctors rather than just working for, you know, um, the 15-minute visit, you know, RVU billing cycles. Dr. Meckley and I have repeated that to ourselves many times, is that we are not direct primary care doctors. We are outstanding family medicine doctors, and direct primary care is the model that allows us to be better doctors.
0: Yeah, sort of your operating system that, that gets to happen within.
1: Everything everything in medicine that people get frustrated with, the billing and the prices and the wait times, those are all secondary to what should be at core, which is an outstanding patient-physician relationship. And you really want your doctor to be this is what you know attracted me going into medicine in the first place is you want is is to be a practicing scientist and to to be an outstanding clinician and everything else should be secondary to that doctor-patient relationship. You want your doctor's brain to be on fire for you and not worried about you know the next three patients that are already waiting because the hospital says you have to see four patients an hour regardless of how many complaints they have, whatever you know i I, I um, I want to be an intellectual for my patients and I want to be a caring heart for my patients. And beyond that, everything else should be should support that relationship. Yeah.
0: Or, you know, or worst case scenario that um, the actual course that would be the best for you can't be done because you can't afford it because of insurance or something's being prescribed to you because the doctor has a relationship with that. You know, it's like, With that pharmaceutical company. And I don't, uh, I don't know to what degree those are actually factors, but those are sort of the scare stories, the urban legends, if you will, some Mm -hmm. of which I think are true and are not that keep people from truly trusting the people that they need to trust most Mm -hmm. with their health. Uh, That if you come into your relationship with your primary doctor, skeptical of their motives, uh, it's a horrible place to start. But I think a lot of people are because of all of those factors. Um, At the risk of asking you a question that could derail the entire rest of our conversation, why is it all so screwed up? I know you have a soapbox, Dr. Meckley. We we sort of talked about this before, and I want to give you the opportunity to climb on there for a second if you want. But, like, is it as simple as that that for-profit medicine in and of itself is a bad idea? I mean, why is it that in the United States... Things are so messed up about just the ability to get good primary care from all of the systems that supposedly are designed to facilitate that.
2: Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, yeah, (laughs) I will try to be concise. (laughs) I know we
0: could go for two hours just (laughs) on that.
2: And there are, you know, there's a lot of opinions. I, I gave a lecture on if you look back from the 1920s, like how our healthcare system is designed and all the legislature that's been passed, each piece kind of makes sense. But when you put it together as a whole, no one would design the system. No one would start from scratch and say, this is the best system to get the outcomes that we're looking for. And what has happened, I think, over the last 10 to 15 years is business has been driving medicine. You know, medicine used to be a standalone profession. Business came into medicine. Um, you know, it was first started mainly by religious organizations, you know, and needs. And then um, it has become big business. And we kind of knew that, you know, we always talked about the mission and the, and the, and the um, you know, that the, 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 you have to have a mission. You have to have the, um, oh, I can't think of the saying now, the finances, you know, in line. But um, it flipped for me. I know because I was in the executive levels, and it flipped probably about um, eight years ago when I found that more decisions were being made, first and foremost financially. And then in the last probably five or six years, it really was – that was – uh, it, it is it is just an, it is what it is it's it's just an ins- unfortunate focus right now and then you can see how things are or are not aligned when i started understanding the broker world and the insurance and then the pharmaceutical and these things called pbms which is the pharmacy benefit manager every facet of that business Mm. That's what they're there for. You don't go into business typically not to have um, profit of whatever profit you decide. You know, there are non-for-profits, but you're you're serving someone. So all of those decisions became just overwhelming. And then if you understand some of the connections between what the checks and balances were supposed to be and they're really not there anymore— um, it, it, it was, and I won't get into too much, but it is disconcerting and, and to the point of sometimes being unethical, eas- actually easily being unethical in certain areas. Um, not every area by far. And so I think the key in what I've been working for the last 12 to 14 years is transparency in an open marketplace. Once you can have a consumer say, this is what I want and this is how much it's going to be. So like one of the jokes Dr. Glass and I say is you'll never see a chandelier in our office. Because literally, that is your money, because you're paying us to be a doctor, to have a pretty chandelier up there. And we don't think that's value. So when you say, I'm going to vote with my dollars as to what I think is important, and you have transparency to say, here's what I need. So for your words, to go into a primary care doctor knowing that they have you as your best interest, your well-being as your best interest, without a lot of other confounding factors pulling at them, that is where the trust relationship goes. That's where you can say, okay, my shoulders go down when I walk in. Mm-hmm. I know this person's got my back. Um, so that's one of those big premises where I think we were lost our way a little bit in medicine is because of all of these other very significant and large factors that were having a great play and in, in how things were being decided in and the I, bigger aspect.
1: I, I think, um, you know, Amy and I I think we're good business women. We it does not mean that there isn't a role for good business in medicine. There's a fantastic no. role for good business in medicine. You should see us. We I am a process improvement geek. We are we have our planning board where we, you know, we do plan do study act cycles all the time. We have a board where we are every single week we meet to find out how can we improve the um the the cost, the accessibility, the quality of the care that we provide. Every single week, we are brainstorming on how to do that better. And, and, you know, to to allow the creativity of the people providing the care to come forth rather than people who are back in an office, just making business decisions, you know, all, all the time, we we bring our medical students in, we bring our office staff in, anyone who's witnessing care with our patients, say, hey, is there anything we could do to be doing this better for our patients this week? And it's um, it makes it so that it's exciting. It makes it so it's better value for the patient, better quality, um, better jobs for us. We're happier in our jobs. And um and again it just aligns the closeness of the people making the medical decisions with the patients even closer rather than having third party administrators uh involved in the care.
0: Mm. Um well I I obviously think it's wonderful. I think we could um you know, we could go down the list of, of what you mentioned access. I wanna be really specific for people that are sort of thinking, what does that mean? I mean, I, I can say right now, access is I have an app that if I have a health concern, you know, in the middle of the night, I can either text you or potentially call for, if it's an emergency, through the app and generally speak with one of you rather than, uh, you know, getting an answering service or something like that. Um, Somehow, I don't know, uh, it seems to me that you negotiate your own lab fees. Um, So for testing and things like that, those are dramatically lower than I have experienced elsewhere because they're not going through insurance and I have I have insurance it's just a matter of what you choose to use.
1: So great clarification, Brandon, for your listeners that health insurance doesn't mean you necessarily have affordable health care. Right. And one of the ways that our model has become so affordable, so patients pay us a low monthly fee and then all their visits are included, is because we were able to, because we don't have the overhead of billing insurance companies, we're able to charge less than an average doctor's office. Mm -hmm. When we go to the lab companies and we do the same thing for imaging and certain visits with certain specialists and we tell them, listen, we could save you the overhead head of billing insurance, if our patients pay directly, so we do kind of direct payments to the lab companies, um, their prices just came down incredibly. So about three years ago, I paid for a, um, a thyroid panel, just a basic lab at the hospital, and it was one hundred and thirty-six dollars. Mm-hmm. We run the same lab for under ten dollars. Yeah, the, b- because the, the 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 cost is so blown out of proportion when, when when insurance and third parties are included. So yes, exactly. We were able to negotiate lower prices because we were able to tell our partners at the lab company, at imaging locations, etc. You know, our patients just pay directly. You don't yeah. have to bill insurance. Can we get a better price for them.
0: That's amazing. And I so can that's say, what people you know, experience, yeah. yeah, I think in that first, first time I saw you, um, Dr. Meckley, we were, you know, we we're trying to nail some stuff down. So you did like the standard, let's test all the things, let's do vitamin D levels. And, and I don't know the words, <laughs> I, I, but anyway, you did a bunch of stuff. And, uh, and I think I, I expected when, when you said, yeah, there'd be a lower rate, um and then i found out that all of those tests i mean something like 10 or 12 different tests came down i think it was like 70 bucks or maybe less that i ended up paying that first time i was amazed by that um and so is do you have a obviously it's only the two of you you have a certain number of patients that you can take every year once you get once you hit that ceiling you're closed
2: okay yeah well um because we do you know express uh, the um, accessibility and the care Um, you know when I was at a large healthcare system I was over you know 3,200 patients and now they're looking at 4,000 to 6,000 you can't even imagine taking care of those patients even knowing them very well yeah. So for multiple reasons we do, and and so we both are we both have a limit, and every direct primary care can set their own. That's the nice thing; they can decide, and then you know the consumer says, "Hey, that's great, it works for me." Or, "Gosh, no, I'm not able to get in now." And and you know again, that that should be an open discussion um, with the patient, and uh, I mean that you know the the practice. Mm-hmm. So each each doc can set that, and we absolutely you know will be setting that. And then the solution is well, there are other docs who want to be doing this we bring on additional doctors. So for us, it's not a clinic. It's not, you know, you just get to see who you see. You have a personal relationship with Dr. Glass. She knows you. Um, you know, she's been on a maternity leave, and I can tell you her patients, if not multiple times a day, are wishing her well and saying, oh, we miss her. Tell her, you know, she's, you know, tell her hello to, you know, to her and the baby, et cetera. There is an absolute relationship. And when you have that, you can take care of patients so much better. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, there's multiple reasons for that cap. And then the other, you know, one of the criticisms is, well, gosh, we don't have enough primary care doctors. How, why would you then make a cap if we're trying to get to more patients? And our solution is more doctors would like to do this. And we know they'll probably stay in practice longer. Mm-hmm. And or they'll come out of other uh, potential commercial jobs or other types of jobs where they've kind of been driven in because they've been so, as Dr. Glass referred to earlier, the burnout. Yeah. I mean this is not if you think some somebody and you you their their skills and talents are in relationships, think of primary care. it's It's intellectual stimulation as Dr. Glass was talking about, relationships. If I'm seeing one patient after another, and my key goal is to document in this obnoxiously long chart just so I can bill a certain insurance company. And I have to do all these checks and balances and I have to do all of these things and I'm under all these pressures to do all kinds of things from outside influences. The meaning and purpose of my work goes down. Yeah. You know, my joy goes down, worse, worse outcomes, et cetera. You've got people who are really smart looking for something else to do because they're they're just really crispy. Mm-hmm. Um this comes back, you, you're fully re-engaged in the care of your patients. So we, we think it's a pathway to help, you know, other docs in, in uh, multiple ways. So anyway, the a little bit of a long answer there. But mm-hmm. yes, we are going to cap our practice. Um, but for our patients, we'd say, so, you know, you'll be a Dr. Meckley patient, there's Dr. Glass patients. And then if we bring on someone else, so you won't, you'll still have that personal relationship.
0: And I'll link for anybody that's listening, I'll link to your website and to your Facebook page if anybody's interested in learning more and people can obviously get in touch with you. You do um, sessions, I don't know how frequently now, uh, you know, (laughs) Q&A sessions. I know that you do other things sort of out in the community and... um, but people can can get to your website and find out ways to learn more. I don't know. We talked a little bit about we started that we're both using uh, new video technology, and I don't know how long it's going to let us record. So um, before we are done with that, I want to take a second to sort of shift a little bit to present state of the world. And I feel like I would what be do you remiss- mean, Brandon? <laughs> no, there's nothing going on. There's nothing. <laughs> I just mean the pollen levels. That's all. Yeah, it's yeah. just wow. allergies. That's all I'm talking about, <laughs> um, which is my problem right now. Um, no, I would love to give you the opportunity for people that are listening to this. I think this will probably come out in a couple of days. Just to give some... There's so much out there right now. I I am a social media junkie. I have a problem with it. This is curing my social media problem because there's so much anxiety every time I got on Facebook that I'm just not doing it anymore. Yeah. So I would love to... Um, Dr. Meckley, you and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago by phone in which you kind of just told me at that point, what your snapshot was for what you think are achievable goals in terms of social isolation for people at this point and, uh, what your, what your own sort of home practices are in terms of how you're acting. Um, I think that might be useful for people. So why don't we, um, We'll just start with you, Dr. Meckley, and then I would, Dr. Glass, I would love to hear sort of both of you literally talk about anything you think people need to hear right now. But I do think it would be interesting to hear people, uh, for people to hear how you are acting and how this is affecting you and what the decisions are that you're making in your own sort of protecting your family and so forth.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a great time to um, highlight a few of these things because there's so many sources for information. So first, I'd just love to hit on the fact that the telehealth, the telemedicine that we're practicing has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. We've been able to keep in contact with all of our patients, everyone, as you mentioned, our app, which is a video and texting, all that stuff. I am so impressed with, my, with our patients. They really shifted. Um, people have used this already we are seeing very few people in the office and and doing such a beautiful job of keeping everybody um, well Um, i'm super proud of our staff um but really our patients they're, they're 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 listening we send out now a weekly update with the most trusted information and and brandon you get that feel free if you want to post it or link it okay we're just trying to say in that a few things one limit your exposure to the information to two 30-minute uh, sessions, maybe once in the mid-morning and once, you know, not late evening. Get stay informed, but that's it. Not right you know, before Don't you go
0: to bed. Not for right before bad you go dreams to bed. <laughs> all night. Not. Yeah.
2: Do not keep any kind of station on in the background, just in case for the latest breaking news. Because uh-huh. if you just listen to the tone of the people talk, it makes you anxious. Just mm-hmm. their tone. So get good information, but small bits. And again, that's why we're sending out our newsletter once a week. Um, take it very seriously. Again, I'm I'm very proud of people and very happy that people understand what social distancing is. There's a reason for that six feet. Um, It will make a huge difference. By you being smart and staying at home, doing non-essential things at home, only essential things out, it will save tens of thousands of people. It really will. So it's an invisible Threat, that it's hard. It's really hard to think, why am I doing this? I don't feel sick. I'm not going to get sick. And I always tell people, it's not so much about you. Yeah. It's about everybody that you may or may not even know you will affect. So we, I think there's some beautiful things that are going to come around about this, but we are all connected. We are literally more so than any other time you understand. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what color you are, what age you are. We are all connected and we affect each other. So just having that, that sense of awareness And again, a few tidbits for our mental health is really thinking about how can I do this well and stay connected, but also how can I serve? Mm. What special talents and gifts do I have that I could shift and put into something that um, I can help out? There's a lot of people who are very lonely right now, calling the elderly, you know,
1: reading stories over the phone.
0: And then uh, Dr. Glass, your, your thoughts on the situation that we're in.
1: Yeah, I think one thing you asked us to reflect on is our personal practices related to the virus. And I think it's an important question because nobody wants to be a sensationalist. Nobody wants to go overboard. But I will say that. You know, myself, my family, Dr. Meckley's family, doctors, we take this very seriously and everybody should as well. There's a video circulating, which I can give you the link to post as well, Brandon, with Mm -hmm. a demonstration from a doctor using the techniques of sterile technique, what we use when we're doing surgeries, small procedures in the office for staying clean, how to do that when you bring objects into your home. And the example he uses, I think is great, is to imagine like the virus is glitter, And it is your goal to keep your home glitter free. And just think about it because, (laughs) you know, you may go to the, let's say you go to the pharmacy and you have to pick something up. I think it's great that you use some hand sanitizer afterwards, but that object that you just picked up from the pharmacy now has glitter on it. Mm -hmm. So that means, so for me, let's say I go pick up that object. Even if I wash my hands afterwards, I've already touched the stroller, And since I'm pushing the stroller, then when I get my keys out to open the door to my home, I've touched my keys and the handle to the house, and I've put the keys down on the counter. I now need to wipe down the handlebars to the stroller, the door handle, the keys, and the counter where I set the keys down and the packaging that, you know, the object from the pharmacy came in. If you think about it as glitter, anything that glitter could have touched, you've got to clean. And and no, that's not being obsessive. That's um, really good sterile technique, and that's what we should all be doing um, to keep our home safe, and uh, j- just to reiterate the practices that Dr. Meckley mentioned, my family is doing as well: twice daily mandatory walks outside to yeah. get our dose of nature and exercise, good nutrition, um, uh, trying to stay connected to family. We're spending a lot of time on Facetime and Zoom, and trying to minimize um, social media exposure to just keep it organized. We want to be informed, but um, not overwhelmed.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think that's all really helpful. We have sort of been, um, I'm i am staying with our in-laws as we go through this, and we've sort of developed our practices, you know, limiting one person goes to the grocery store once, twice at most per week. When we bring everything home, we have this, like, we meet that person who's got a mask and gloves at the door, and we wipe everything down and spray everything off and things that are not... Uh, uh, don't need to be refrigerated. We're like leaving out in the sun, you know, we're, and who knows, I don't know how much of that is the best thing to do, but we're doing the best we can to feel like we're all on the same page about following through all this stuff.
1: No, that's perfect, Brandon. That's not too much. And cause remember that your family's, um, um, isolation is only as good as the isolation of everyone who comes into your home. So yep. if one person breaks the, you know, isolation, then everybody is breaking it.
0: And Dr. Glass will give you the the last word. So the question is: for a lot of people, their relationship to work and their daily rhythms is changing, and many people feel that could be one of the bright spots to come from all this. How has the crisis changed or impacted how you think about your work?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's been interesting for me to this hap- for this to happen at the same time that I'm on maternity leave because I've you know I've I've heard a lot of um, parents answer similarly that when they become a parent, they become more efficient in some ways. And I think many people from the virus will actually see that same efficiency, you know, questioning, does this need to be an in-person meeting or is this something we could do on the phone? Yeah. Not because we don't want to go into work, but because we value time at home and we need to be efficient with our resources. You know, I'm on a a, a group of people trading photos about cooking and we're all being sure to be conservative with, you know, we can't find um, flour. So we're or finding recipes that use very little yeast and a slow fermentation process. All these efficiencies that are so fun to think about and, and not just fun, but important right now. Um, I, I see that same efficiency applied to my work. Uh, I, I will say also, though, to be a physician during this and to really be considered as part of the f- front line is really a um, a call to action and a call to duty. It's very There are very few times in a physician's life when we get called beyond what our job is to take... Um, action that is part of our vocation and part of our calling. You know, it might be a sick person on an airplane or this pandemic where we are being told, regardless of your job, we may be called to serve in the emergency room or in the hospital. And we take that very seriously. We take great pride in that. And um, it's an honor to to kind of be part of that calling right now at this time. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you both for such thoughtful answers and for... Being so willing to go with the flow in the middle of all the technical problems. So, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank Um, you, Brandon. It's been wonderful to talk to you both.
1: Thank you for having us, Brandon.
0: This episode of The Distiller was recorded live in the middle of a global pandemic across the airwaves and through the wonders of modern technology. Equal thanks and curses to Zoom.com, Google Hangouts, and our trusty iPhones for making the recording possible, even with some significant interruptions. Most of all, thanks to my guests, Dr. Amy Meckley and Dr. Eleanor Glass. As you can no doubt tell, they are amazing doctors and amazing people. Talk about meaningful work. It doesn't really get any better than the work they're doing at Integrative Family Care. And as Dr. Glass said, they are taking new patients. These could be your doctors. Integrative Family Care is located at 2200 Victory Parkway, Suite 603 in Cincinnati. It's in the Edgecliff Building, just off Eden Park, if you're a Cincinnatian. But the best way to learn more is to visit their website, ifcdirect.com. You can find a link to their site and to their Facebook page on our website, at thedistillerpodcast.com and i'll also post the most recent letter from their email list which includes a lot of great information on best practices for keeping yourselves healthy during this crazy time and as dr meckley mentioned a video how to wash your hands the distiller is produced recorded and hosted by me brandon dawson our show is mixed and we get technical expertise which was incredibly useful in this episode from justin golden Our logo is designed by Scott Ryan Design. Videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com where you can find links, photos of the guests, and a map of all our previous show locations prior to this one. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. It really does make a difference. And if you want to help us make more of these episodes, just go to the website and click on the Become a Patron button for more information. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Stay safe, stay well, stay home. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.